Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I want you more. I didn't supply the microphone. Ladies and gentlemen, the following program, True Crime Uncensored, is produced with a vengeance. Live by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network and is heard worldwide on iTunes, iPhone, Error FM, and probably the fillings of your teeth. I am the legendary Burl Bear. Welcome back to the lawyer chair, Don Waldman. And I gotta tell you, this story, this book, this is really up close and personal because I lived in Benedict Canyon, a mile and a half from Sharon Tate's home when all the stuff came down. Ooh. And its impact, I mean, it was the end of the flower generation. Everything that was supposedly light and coming out of San Francisco crashed in one night. Oh, it was pretty horrifying. I remember it well. Because it was a ritualistic killing. Nobody could comprehend what the hell had happened or why it had happened. And uh, now we've got a book that's written, and it's brilliantly written and from the psychiatric point of view, but... Also from a stylistic point of view. It's yeah. A very yeah. well-written book. And I'm looking forward to talking to Marlon. Marlon, you there, Marlon Marinick. Hey there, how's it going? Hi, uh, you're freezing there in Regina, Saskatchewan? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a little warmer than normal right now. We had rain yesterday, which is completely bizarre for February. So what, bring you up to like minus 17? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if the, you live there, you're used to it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I got to tell you, first of all, before we we get into the gruesome uh, details, and it starts up pretty gruesome no matter how you look at it. Uh, I want to yeah. compliment you. This book is not what I anticipated. Uh, I was expecting something entirely different, and uh, it's a fabulous book. So I want to tell people right now, Charles Manson now is more than just a book about Charles Manson. Uh, fabulous book. And what really fascinated me is. The part that Manson plays in myth in your own life before yeah. you ever met this guy. Can you give the audience just yeah, a little... how you discovered him, so to speak? Well, well, I kind of, I'll give you, I guess, a little bit of my background. I, I come from a dysfunctional family. My father was an alcoholic, and my mother completed suicide when I was eight years old. And during those times, I used to read a lot, and I, I came into contact with a copy of Helter Skelter, which for most people is the introduction to to Charles Manson, and at the time I, I couldn't really comprehend it, um, but I remember those the imagery and those photos and his eyes and the blood on the walls and, and that kind of a thing. And so, in, in writing the book, I had to go back to my earliest memory of of Manson, and, and I kind of entwine that with my childhood, and that's kind of how the book starts. Marlon, how do you separate the man from the crime? Um, for a long time, I kind of just kind of thought, well, he didn't murder anybody, right? And, and I got by with that. That was kind of enough. But I, in doing research and working on this book, I had to go into the murders and try to figure out what happened and what kind of influence this guy had on everybody. And how was his influence? Um, I don't know. I, I'm still, still kind of open on that. Like, the guy I met, the Charles Manson I know, has a lot more in common with uh, mentally ill people I work with on a daily basis, you know, transients, you know, Guys who live at Salvation Armies and shelters and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I, I mean, he's been he's been case. in prison since 1969, and mm -hmm. it has to have had a major impact on his psyche. And that's one of the issues that's going through my mind is that who are you talking to today as compared to who went to prison in 1969? Yeah, I think they're they're probably two different people. Though a lot of people who remain friends with 
with uh, with him over the years kind of stays the same guy, he has the same values, the same outlook on things. But I think he, he's told me that he's had four breaks where he was out of prison and back in kind of thing. He's, he was a career criminal, mostly petty crimes like car theft and credit cards and little scams. And and uh, I'm sure he would have ended up in prison eventually. I, that was that was kind of his life. And he's told me that in total. He's um, 76 now, and he's done more than uh, 65 years in jail. So. I hope he lives to be 120. (laughs) He lives to be 120. (laughs) I seem to recall, I don't know if this is in the book or not, but, you know, he was up in what McNeil Island Federal Penitentiary. And uh, when they went to let him out, he didn't want to go. He didn't want to go. And he he references that, that if you've spent so much time in prison, if you're almost like raised in it, prison isn't prison to you, it's home. And when they tell you we're letting you out, it's like we're kicking you out of your home. Eight by 12. Yeah, and he's tried... Um, part of the book is I, I, I transcribed our phone conversations. I have about, I don't know, 40, 50 hours or so. And it's just kind of dialogue. And I tried putting that into a way for him to kind of explain himself and tell his story. And he's tried to do that a lot to explain his situation. And that whole environment in, in Corcoran Prison is a whole other animal. You know, I, I've, I've worked in jails as a nurse, but what, what he's up against in there and what those guys deal with on a daily basis is pretty unbelievable. Now the, well, one thing I found, well, many things I found fascinating is that you tried to find out before you went there what it's like to be in that penitentiary, and there were people who could not explain it to you. They didn't have the ability mm-hmm. until you finally found another prisoner who could give you a grasp of what it's like. And What, what, what did you find out? Yeah, well, the majority, where he's at now is a, it's a unit called PHU, which is a protective housing unit, and he's there because I guess you could say he's a celebrity, and and he wouldn't fit into population at any of the other prisons in California, and because of um, other associations like Bobby Boussoulet and other, you know, Tex Watson and all these people that they have to keep everybody separated. So these inmates are high profile. A lot of them, it, I guess, snitches is the term. They have. Um, turned informant on gangs or, or whatever situations, and a lot of them are like really sick, vile sex offenders that can't be in, in other populations. So it, it's down to like 14 guys right now. Each one worse than the one next to him, probably. What's that, sorry? Each one worse than the one next to him. Yeah, and, and so it's a, it's, a, it's a secure place, and, and the way the whole system functions is a little different, but the majority of these guys have never had any responsibility, have never really had jobs or relationships or, you know, they don't know how to pay bills or anything. Um, and so you, when you try to talk to them about their experience, it's like, what's well, okay? <laughs> they don't really give you anything. And so I met an inmate named uh, David Hooker who was, yeah, he, he was really well-spoken and really, really well-read, and he was able to explain his, you know, situation to me a lot clearer. There were a lot of stories about cell phones in prison and other amenities that shouldn't be there. What about Manson? Did he have access to any of these things, cell phones, radios, in his small cell? Well, that's kind of in the media right now. Um, about a year ago, he got caught with a cell phone, and then a month ago, he got caught with another one. And so when something like that happens, I mean, these guys have been living together for, like, you know, at least, like, 15, 20 years or so. So they're, like, it's a pretty tight little group, and, and things kind of work the way they are. And when someone gets caught with a cell phone, it disrupts everything. So 
right now, I guess it's safe to say there's a lot of heat around something like that because it's like, you know, Manson, you had to bring another cell phone in, you know. Yeah, cop made it bad for everybody. Yeah. Of course, yeah, the, the, the issue I have is who is he calling and who's calling him? He's calling you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I got one call at like 3 or 4 in the morning and I didn't answer, so it was just some... He just kind of left a message, but I don't know. Like he's, he's connected all over the world. He knows a lot of people. Seems like everybody wants a piece of him. He must get. I hate to use the term fan mail. Uh, <laughs> please, I don't want to hear him referred to as a pop icon, and I'm going to throw up. Yeah, yeah. But that's one of the, the the things that has happened. I mean, he has become larger than his physical frame. Uh, the the myth of Manson has outstripped whatever the reality is. He must get a lot of mail. I've seen I've seen some of it, and a lot of it is from you know kids from dysfunctional homes that kind of a thing or people. He's kind of like an anti-hero in a way. Um, most of his mail is is from musicians. He gets a lot of that, and a lot of it is it's a lot of requests like um, people wanting to sign you know his autograph or his artwork or they want um, him to contribute to a paper or a book they're working on, you know, those, those kind of things. A lot of media requests, like he told me he gets, what, 50 a week, um, that kind of a thing. Well, so I guess probably when the rating sweep week comes up on uh, network TV, they probably want to get him on there. Wow. Well, every every anniversary of, of you know, like last year was the 40th anniversary of the crimes. He had over 2,000 media requests. But the state of California has... Um, Laws that say you can't interview specific inmates. So, um, yeah, you can't can't really interview them. So the very fact that you connected with this guy in itself yeah. is rather bizarre. What, what, what's uh, what's up with that? <laughs> you, you don't want to know. I don't want to know. <laughs> That's our producer <laughs> handing me notes about okay. emails coming in on the show. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> Not, nothing negative at all as far as you're concerned. No, no, yeah, but I, we, can, we can talk negative, too, whatever. I, I mean, for, from my perspective, I, I'm a psychiatric nurse. I've always been... Uh, fascinated with philosophy and psychology and, and those kind of issues and to have an opportunity to talk to a guy like like Charlie, uh, I, you know, I, I'm going to take it, you know. So so I did that, but I never thought it would come to um, having a relationship, actually meeting him and doing a book. All of that just kind of fell together. Well, yeah, especially considering he's getting 2,000 requests a week from different media mm -hmm. outlets wanting to connect with him, and instead he's place and collect calls to Saskatchewan to talk to yeah, you. Yeah. I mean, it's very, outrageous. very strange. And Marlon, he actually wrote the foreword to the book. And I want to do something I rarely do on the air. I want to read this paragraph, and you tell me what you make out of this paragraph he wrote. Okay. Leave this man alone. Do not put him in jail in any direction whatsoever. He's the devil. And we can't control him, and we can't whip him, so we can't beat him. He anticipates everything we're going to do. So stand off him, because he'll destroy everything you fuck with him with. If you do something against him, he's going to turn back on you a thousandfold. And so I'm out there walking around. Here comes the state of California and the Italian Mafia district attorney. They say, I killed people. I ain't killed those people. I didn't have a fucking thing to do with killing those people. That's your kids, Mr. Richard Milhouse Nixon. That's your government, not my government. Marlon, what does that tell you about this man? He often talks about himself in a third person like that. He'll talk about Charles Manson like it's almost like a separate character or something. And, and, and he's always been adamant that he's been innocent about everything the whole time. And 
to be honest with you, I, I really didn't know a whole lot about the crimes until I got involved with all of this and kind of had a crash course. And it, it's one of those stories, I, I can understand why it's fascinating on so many levels for so many different people, because the more you learn, the less you know, and it just gets stupider and crazier. Because there's and, no way to rationalize these kind of actions. No, and you're, you're dealing with madness on a lot of levels. I mean, I, I, like it, it's, it's tricky because my relationship with him is almost like... Um, like a therapist client or something i know and i have to respect mental health i just feel i do i don't know if it's ethical or not but you know he has some obvious mental health concerns right and i think if you look at those events that happened in the 60s you got a guy who's um getting messages from the beatles records he thinks he's jesus he's paranoid he thinks a race war is happening he's hiding out in the desert he's digging a hole into the center of the earth <laughs> did he make I mean, it how far did he make it <laughs> Well, sounds like a typical L.A. guy to me. <laughs> well, from my end, it sounds like a schizophrenic break, you know, I think, you know, it doesn't it doesn't sound normal at all. Of course not. What and the, and then, then you throw in a lot of drugs and the rest of it, and, and it, yeah, there's no way to logically make any sense or tie any of it together. Yeah, you can't make sense of the nonsensical or, or make irrational things rational, no matter how many how often you look at it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. One thing that uh, a lot of people don't realize is, and, and they're vaguely familiar with the story, with the Tate LaBianca murders, is that mm. these people knew each other. It wasn't that they just randomly picked this house and randomly went in and killed these people. Oh, yeah, that, that even makes it uglier. It's that not they, random they, per se. They knew these people. They've been back and forth. They've been uh, having sex with each other. They've been, been out at the ranch. They've been using the pool. They Everyone mm. knew everybody. Yeah, that, that was kind of shocking to, to find that out you know and almost like a revelation but in those circles it's all common and, and that's how they talk um charlie's told me personally that you know sharon was a friend of his they all knew each other that you know mm -hmm. how did he how did he know sharon tate roman polanski i think roman was involved in a lot of sketchy things as well um, a lot of pornography and i think film was kind of new and they had like something like a some pre- VCR kind of thing. Yeah. They were trading tapes and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, in the book it says, you're yeah, interviewing someone who says that they, uh, uh, that uh, Wojtek and Jay, I guess which is Jay Sebring, yeah. uh, were working to corner the MDA, which is a, it's like a speed product market, and mm -hmm. working with three drug dealers from Canada who the LAPD interrogated. Mama Cass assumed these three guys did the murders because they were her drug dealers, and John Phillips, we have to check this out with Scott McKenzie, next time I talked to was John Phillips' buddy. John Phillips called the LAPD and said the same guys most likely committed the crimes, and Deborah Tate said, just out of nowhere in a recent interview, those Manson people were here all the time. They used the pool. They used the bathroom. As for Helter Skelter, these killings brought out a pile of dirt that had to be swept under the carpet. The big deal was that movie and rock stars were slumming by picking up hippies on Sunset Strip and bringing them home to party with. Sex and drugs and rock and roll and movie stars. The American Dream. One of the strangest stories is that Cary Grant was having sex with some guy in the bushes when this happened, but that sounds pretty oh, far-fetched. come on. Come on, come on. Yeah, <laughs> that, that sounds pretty far-fetched to me. Yeah, I... I story is a huge part and it's hard to distinguish in reality from fiction right but i i think i think i think that's fact i think they all did know each other and i know and basically if you look at the character of tex watson he's a real um, sweetheart that guy he's the one who killed everybody yeah like he we know that much and we know he was a drug addict and and he, he ripped off a lot of people along the way he wasn't an honorable criminal by no means 
And so I, I think it, it's plausible that he showed up, you know, at, at the Tate House and, and met with Boytech and said, you know, let me in on what you guys got going kind of thing, and they didn't know how to deal with them. So they sent him away, and then they regrouped. And when he came back again, they told him, you know, get the hell out of here, we'll call the police kind of thing. And so he probably went up to Charlie and said, you know, what do we do? And, and Charlie probably said to him, you know, do what you need to do or shut up kind of thing, you know. I, I don't know if that would be a command <laughs> or <laughs> the start of a race war or whatever, but it, it sounds like a basic home invasion. I mean, that's the terminology now, right? But it's unquestionable that he had influence over his cult. I mean, I, some people try to characterize him as being like a, a, a Rasputin, he hypnotized yeah. people, a Svengali, but he had an effect and an influence, and it was observable even during the trial. Mm-hmm. I, I could say, like, even now he has an influence over people, right? I mean, just from the volume of mail and interest, and he shows up all over the place, right? So, yeah, I, I would I would assume so. Did you feel him in any ways being uh, influ- influencing you or intimidating you or attempting to do that at this stage of his life? It was, we when we started correspondence, like it, was, it was phone calls. And a lot of that, I, I think he could have been talking to anyone, really. There was no connection there. There was no relationship, really, until after we really met, kind of a thing. And, and um, a lot of what he talks about is kind of circular and, and his main focus these days is around the environment and what he calls atwa which stands for air trees water and animals and that like no matter what you talk about it goes into that and if you ask the guy a direct question he'll just go into something else it's not a you know he's not a person you can really interview and so a lot of our dialogue is around um yeah around nature and the environment and a lot of almost mystical kind of things, a lot of philosophical kind of things. You know, he likes talking about that. Seems to me, I mean, you have a lot more experience dealing on a day-to-day basis with people with mental illness as a true crime writer uh, who writes books about people who are psychopaths and sociopaths. Almost all of them. Almost all of them. And having different gone, degrees. And uh, having gone to prisons and met with people who have done these things. Uh, I'm sure you've noticed when you talk to them, there are certain phrases, certain key words that will trigger a change in their consciousness, and you can see it in their eyes, and bam, they're off on that circular world or that perseveration where they just get stuck in a groove, and you have to know what words to say to pop them out of it. Yeah. It almost, uh, I mean, I, I don't think I'm threatening it in any way, and I don't think I, ever, I wanted anything from him, and so I think it was easy for him to talk to me. I mean, I, maybe that, and I didn't know a whole lot about and wasn't quizzing him about the murders and stuff, which seems to be why he's known and what people want from him the most, you know. Well, did you send him a copy of the book? Yeah, yeah, he's, he's reading it right now, actually. Yeah. <laughs> when we come back from the break, I want to know what his reaction was, if any. Yeah, we'll be right back in 60 seconds with uh, Marlon Marinick, author of the new book, Charles Manson Now, on True Crime Uncensored. in front of Kroger. You are no longer tied to your computer. You are now free to roam and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. Grab an Outlaw Radio iPhone application. The smoking, drinking, interrupting. Did I say interrupting? 24-hour party that you follow now follows you. 
Your iPhone is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends at Outlaw Radio, like me. Change the way you listen to the radio seven days a week, now available at the iTunes App Store. There are some things in life that just don't go together. But listen to this. You take one drop-dead gorgeous woman. You add an incredibly wealthy, handsome man. You put them together. They have all the money, clothes, jewels, drugs, alcohol they could possibly want. Well, then you throw in a Glock 9mm handgun. It's all good fun until someone gets killed. Fatal Beauty, the shocking true story of beautiful Rhonda Glover, who put 13 bullets from a Glock 9mm into her boyfriend of 15 years, Jimmy Jost. Oh, she said he was abusive. The friend said he was passive. Either way, he was dead. Fatal Beauty, available January 2011 from Pinnacle True Crime by Burl Bear, living legend, true crime author, and trust me, he's brilliant, I know it, because I am Burl Bear, author of Fatal Beauty. And now, back to True Crimes with Burl Bear and Don Waldman. And we're talking to Marlon Marinick, author of the new book, Charles Manson, now. Charlie, uh, Charlie's a strange duck, Don. <laughs> oh, okay. I think, I think we that kind of. Yeah. Uh, how is it that, that this guy, who had been in prison for so many years, winds up San Francisco, winds up in L.A., he's. I mean, I've got the Beach Boys uh, 2020 album, <laughs> or the Friends album, and it's got songs on there uh, that were actually by Charles Manson. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. Um, wow. I've talked to him a lot about music, and he was friends with. Uh, Neil Young, Neil Young gave him a motorcycle. Uh, Neil Diamond, he knew the birds. Um, used to hang out with Jim Morrison. He thought he was a good kid. You know, he meant well. He was doing his own thing. Um, he, I think he was one of those guys, and I think he had something that was kind of unique and, and maybe could have, but but he just wasn't, um, you couldn't direct him to do anything in a studio or, or collaborate with him in any way. He was friends with Frank Zappa. Um, yeah, so I think that whole era, I think he was a part of that. Maybe that's part of the... Well, he must have had some sort of talent somewhere if all these guys were hanging out with him and if they were even recording his songs, such as Dennis Wilson, the Beach Boys, uh, was it Never Never Learn Not to Love Me, I think, is the song that uh, Charlie did. It's on the uh, the album. Oof. Yeah, he told me uh, one story where they used to go to Frank Zappa's house and it could be a who's who of you know musicians at that time. And there used to be a place in Laurel Canyon called the Hippie the hippie cabin which was owned by tom mix and every day like every night when things on sunset got quiet and the bars closed everyone would kind of go out there and party yeah that, that was right ar- right around wonderland drive there yeah yeah everyone was there and, and frank would have these people over and they'd, they'd have these insane jam sessions that would last for hours and he would record all of this stuff and then six months later you start saying you know i recognize that that was <laughs> you know all these recordings were kind of coming out that way that's his story. I don't. I don't know if that really happened or not. But yeah. Well, I know that he was irked at uh, uh, Terry Melcher, who was mm-hmm. a, a producer, an original producer on the, the Birds and uh, friends with the, the Beach Boys. Uh, I don't know, maybe because his album didn't sell or his demos didn't sell. I don't know what the story was there. But it must have had something going for him. He's buddies with all these guys, hang with all these people. Mm-hmm. One thing, yeah. that, getting getting back to the, the after the murders, and I'm familiar with how things get squashed if there's famous names involved. Yeah, they try to keep them out of the Yeah, game. is that, you know, the whole thing with the, the, the early videotapes or films or whatever of, of 
you know, sex orgies, etc., featuring rather famous people. There was a reference to, uh, what was it, Cass Elliot uh, taking on uh, everyone except the Russian army. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, she wasn't exactly Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> I mean, that's like, you know, Rosie O'Donnell doing American Bukaki. <laughs> she looks much better now that her fur has grown out. <laughs> but, I mean, that was one of the concerns. Uh, one of the theories was that the reason the prosecution went the way they did is they didn't want to bring in Sully, shall we say, all these famous people's names who were part of this whole scene. Mm-hmm. Did you find it, was that seemed to be a valid observation? Well, I, I think... There's so many theories, and, and uh, I originally when I was writing, I wanted to introduce four of the most extreme I could find, but my editor and publisher were against that. They thought everything was too confusing, and I had to tell the story, you know, and I don't think you can tell the story, you know. Um, a lot of people have tried, and even, like, when this book, since this book has came out, I've heard from at least five authors who are working on book, and they want to know these obscure little things, like who was... You know, when he when Charlie was in this foster home, who was the, you know, teacher over there? <laughs> All these really weird things that people are so obsessed and, and hung up about. You know, um, I, I think that that's you know one theory with the whole. Sorry, I'm just talking in circles here, but the whole videotape thing and and when people are famous and powerful, I mean, they'll go through great lengths to protect that, right? Well, something, especially something as horrible as this. And, Don, you lived right in the neighborhood. Right. That's the thing. I, that was a mile away, mile and a half away from this. I lived on Benedict Canyon, Cello Drive. It was just skipping a hop. And uh, What I was mean, the impact on, on you and yours? The impact was that I was afraid to go home. We didn't know what the hell was going on. I was living alone in a small little bungalow kind of a place in the canyon. And th- it's an interesting area, Benedict, because there's multimillion-dollar mansions, there's small, woodsy kind of homes, yeah. you name it. But nobody ever worried about security other than worrying perhaps about whether the coyotes were going to get in. And that was about it. And this just was such a wake-up call where everybody started putting locks on the door and buying guns. So it, uh, it's quite an era. Well, going back to uh, when we broke, have you gotten any comment from Manson after he's gotten the book? Yeah, he, it's, it's hard for him to read. Um he kind of he says he called it sight reading, where he has to instead of translating a sentence, he has to understand each word. And so uh. he's about halfway done the book or so right now. I, I, I spoke to him last night. He called. So gee, maybe we get him to do it, some liners for the show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, he's not he's not even supposed to be here. What happened was that California abolished the death penalty, and he was one of the ones whose sentence was commuted to life from capital punishment. Same with Tex Watson. Mm-hmm. That Tex is a piece of work. He was on a 700 Club with uh, Pat Robertson, and that whole thing is just so bizarre. Uh, do you remember that one when he was on with Pat Robertson, Tex Watson? <laughs> what do you say, birds of a feather flock together? together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you want to do a mental illness special, there's, there's your lineup of guests right there. Uh, God, we have free speech in this country, I'll tell you that. But, oh, I think I found the quote here. Uh, here we go. Uh, Tex killed everyone, which is what he told Pat Robertson on his show. Pat Robertson actually makes a statement at the end of, of my movie. This is a filmmaker you're interviewing. One of the yeah. most amazing things anyone has ever said about the situation. Quote, you, referring to people in the audience, you didn't kill a pregnant woman and smear her guts all over the walls, but this man did, and Jesus saved him. Think what he can do for you. Mm. 
That's I, God, I, that's I can't volume. even touch that line. Yeah, that's <laughs> beyond, as my nephew would say, that's beyond the beyond. I know that you've discussed with Manson his religious beliefs. What, what would you characterize them as? Uh, he believes in a God. Um, he thinks it's bizarre that I really don't. And so we often get into philosophical debates around that. He believes in the, like, to him, I, I guess God would be nature and the earth and taking care of that, you know. That's, that's kind of where he's at these days. I don't know if he's mellowed out or, or whatever, but that's, that's his total focus. Also, you made reference in the book to his having some close friends. Did you have any opportunity of meeting any of these so-called friends? And can you tell yeah. me who they were? Like, like uh, Grey Wolf and William Harding and Star. They're, who are these people? people who visit him. They're, uh, they're friends of his who kind of help him do outside stuff and communicate with people. Um, in prison, I, I visited and worked with a guy named David Hooker and um, Kenny Callahan. Oh, I give you a weird story here. Oh, please do. So, <laughs> it's like, can you uh, top this? Yeah. Yeah. So Kenny Callahan is is kind of the guy who he he's a con, kind of manipulative, little you know, a little bit shifty. But I actually kind of like the guy. He is what he is, and um, he's the guy who initiated me talking to Charlie on the phone and set all of that kind of stuff up. He was recently transferred to Mule Creek, Mule, Mule Creek, where um, Tex Watson is. But they have two ranges out there. They, they kind of keep people separated, so he's not in population with Tex because of his association, association with Charlie. But he told me that Tex Watson is working in a meatpacking plant. So he's, like, butchering animals all day or cleaning blood up. Oh, God, like, he's very experienced at that. Put that on his resume. That is really ugly. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I thought that's kind of bizarre. I just heard that yesterday, so. Now, when, when you first saw... Charles Manson in person. Yeah. How did it feel? What, could it, or was it just so bizarre that you can't quite couldn't quite explain? Yeah. What were your emotions after it, all this it time? It was surreal. I mean, even the first time I talked to him, you know, immediately who you're talking to, like it's his, his presence or voice, whatever. It's, it's undeniable, and I honestly never thought I would meet him. The first time I tried, it got shut down. The the jail wasn't, it, this thing's never worked out. And, and he has a history of not going out to see people anyways, you know. So I wasn't really thinking, you know, it would come together. And when I met him, when I was led into the visiting room, he was already in there, and, and he was get, kind of getting a table ready. He was actually getting, he had a, a chess table set up, and I don't know how to play chess. <laughs> so I, I think initially I, I was kind of, I must have been a little freaked out because I, I think he was trying to, um, calm things a little bit or you know he's a little bit you know he's trying to make you comfy wasn't there yeah, a meeting trying to make me comfortable yeah yeah exactly wasn't there a meeting you had where the first thing you said it was get down like you pretended he had a gun he's gonna kill everybody yeah I, I sat down and then he stands up and puts the chair beside him and then he's reenacting this bank robbery thing and it, it's I, I i kind of assumed it would be like on TV where you got the glass and you're talking on phones between inmates or whatever, but you're in an open visiting room and Ooh. there's a center kind of kiosk with two guards in it, and there's a few other inmates that are visiting with family members or whatever. It's a pretty secure thing, and then he starts, you know, you know get down, I'll kill you, you know, I'll fucking shoot you, you know, that kind of thing, right? And I say, like, oh, great, you know, this is <laughs> the shortest video in history. And when he was done this performance, he's trying to catch his breath because, you know, he, he kind of went for it. It was like live theater, you know. And 
he explained to me that um, uh, he, he hates the name, the word teacher, but he, he always tries to ex- explain his, his uh, situation, how he sees the world or whatever. But to him, he was explaining that, like, in a bank robbery or if you're almost in a car accident or whatever, how things kind of slow down and everything kind of falls into place. Mm-hmm. He was saying he called it level seven, which would be like... Um, like a Buddhist term, like um, presence or oneness or, or whatever, you know, when people are kind of in the moment or the now. Shock, and all you're, you're in shock is what you're in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he lives in permanent shock, sure, yeah. Well, with all your dealings with with people with schizophrenic and borderline personality disorder, did he seem fairly common within what you've dealt with before? Yeah. Yeah, yeah what's, it, what's it, your it, diagnosis of the man? Well, he's paranoid, schizophrenic, and antisocial. Um, but I think, you know, when you use that kind of a label, like, like when you see a video of him on YouTube or whatever, there's tons of the stuff out there where he's, you know, acting out or, or whatever. You kind of just write him off as crazy. But to go beyond that is a whole other other thing, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot more to him than mental illness, for sure. Well, it also seems like he's clever enough to hide a lot of his personality traits. Absolutely, and I think when people are intelligent, and I would say, even though he's borderline illiterate, he's extremely intelligent. Um, people seem to cover better, and he's extremely observant. Like that's his whole thing, and everything's connected, and everything's sequenced, and you know. I guess to, to give some kind of background to it, you did some investigation of his childhood. What happened that was traumatic as he was growing up? Um, just never really. Um, his mother, I can't remember how old she was, like 14 or 15 when he was born, and she never wanted to be a mother. And then he told me there was no such thing as abortions, and when you got stuck with a kid, that's kind of how it was. You you made the most out of it. And his mother and uncle were drinking one night in a in a bar, and the waitress came up to him and said, "You know, you know what a what a cute boy you have. I'd love to take him home with me." And and his mom said, "Well, give me a pitcher of beer, and he's yours," kind of thing. <laughs> That must be great so, for your self-image. Well, yeah, and, and so they, she brought him a beer, and, and um, his mom gave him up, and, and it took his uncle like three or four days to track him down and get him back. Jeez. Oh, that's just, you really got to be great for uh, how you view yourself. Mom yeah. trained me for a pitcher of beer. God. And, I, and I, I, I thought that was like um, like folklore. I didn't think that really happened. But, yeah, that's a, that's a true story. Yeah. Now there are there are moments in people's lives of a lot of these sick criminals' lives where the mm-hmm. wall comes down, where something happens, where if someone doesn't reach out at the one moment when they're reachable, or help isn't there when they really need it or want it, it's like like I say, like a wall comes down, like they retreat You're right, behind because something. Because in so many of these instances, there's such a traumatic traumatic series of events that take place during their childhood that they yeah. never recover from it. And that was like uh, uh, Richard Matthew Clark, who raped and murdered uh, Roxanne Dahl up in Everett. His life was very, very similar to uh, to what we were talking about here. And it, when his mother died, he couldn't even, he couldn't grieve. He couldn't grieve, and he was staying with an aunt. And finally, he can grieve, and he breaks down in tears, and he hugs his aunt for, and she says to him, "I can't be your mother. I already have a son." Mm-hmm. Which is the wrong thing to say at the one moment when the kid grieves and is open and is turning to someone. And from that moment on, he was mm-hmm. never there. The wall came down. You can just trace it right from that moment. Boom. He is never there again. 
Yeah. And, I, I think I, when you're talking about a guy like like uh, Charles Manson, he does have a childlike quality about him. You know, I don't know if he reverts back to that or if that's where he feels safe or, or what is what, what the deal is or whatever. But I think you know you, you, he's one of those people, and, and you wonder what if you know what if this guy had proper parents and what if he was encouraged to play music or do art or whatever you know. And I think that's part of the whole tragedy with the whole family and everybody. I mean, most of those kids are upper middle class. You know, they were they were supposed to do things right, not end up in jail and kill people. So. The whole thing is just completely messed up. Does he ever talk about the relationship with the girls in the family? Uh, a little bit. Not not a. It comes up once in a while, but I mean, I, I guess for him those memories are pretty clear because he remembers being out and in jail is pretty much the same routine every day or whatever. Yeah, so things that are different that you remember, and so being outside would be the different for him. Yeah. And that's kind of weird how he appreciates the simple things. Well, I guess any inmate would or whatever. I, I, I've asked him, like, you know, what what would you do if you got out kind of thing? And he's like, you know, sit down and look around. And, you know, I haven't been able to do that for a while. <laughs> yeah. Maybe have a beer. You know, that's not like, oh, rape and pillage. You, <laughs> you know? Let's, not, not let's fantasize for a moment. What would be the reasons why he shouldn't be pardoned? Well, that, I don't know. I but let's do it the other way. What is the reason why he should be pardoned? Yeah, I, I mean, seven counts of murder is a pretty big step, right? I, I mean, that's a pretty big crime, and I, I don't know. You'd probably need to have a retrial, and you'd have to do all of those things. Right? No, I wasn't even thinking of the legalistics. I was just thinking about yeah. uh, the so-called emotional rehabilitation that you hear in so many of these pardoning proceedings. Is he getting any mental health help in there? Is he getting any meds or anything? No, no, no medication, no not oh, here you have a guy who's schizophrenic with other personality disorders. You well, he's think? got somebody to talk to, bro. <laughs> yeah, he well, call, calls Marlon at 3 o'clock in the morning on a stolen cell phone. That's what he does. He, he went through a lot of that in Vacerville in the late 70s, early 80s, where um, he was on a lot of, like, Thorazine and really heavy antipsychotics. But that was more of a chemical restraint, you know? Yeah, d dummy him he's up. He's an unruly, yeah. unruly inmate, and it's like... He, no one can deal with them, so it's like just go drool in the corner. Here you go, you know. Yeah. But but he he's able to manage. He knows right from wrong. He's not at risk to anybody. You know. There's no. Everyone's a little nutty. You know. Most I, I'm sure you can make a case that 60% of people in prisons have mental health problems. Yeah, it's you know? higher than that according to a study done in Canada. Yeah, I wouldn't doubt it. You know. Like it's it's. So what in do you fact, do? here's a here's an interesting little tidbit for you. Uh, Eighty percent of the inmates in the Canadian prison system have fetal alcohol syndrome disorder. What is that? Yeah, that's where well, your brain is permanently dead. Well, you can tell them you're the doctor guy. You're, you're the yeah. <laughs> well, where, where I live, um, I, I, I they keep changing the name to be politically correct, but it was Indian, the Indian population, and First Nations and Aboriginal and. But the Inuit people or First Nation Indians that were here before Columbus kind of thing, um, a lot of bad things happened. They got put into residential schools and taken away from their families, and they never assimilated into culture in any real way. And so a lot of, um, a lot of reserves and, and, and places where they live, they enter, you know, core areas of cities and stuff, they have alcohol problems, and that, that happens to be the main people that end up in prisons in Canada. And yeah, we've heard that before. And they wind up with uh, an irreparable form of brain damage that makes uh, 
the correlation between actions and consequences not connect, and uh, all sorts of other things. What about what, what about his, his knowledge of the outside world? Is he paying any attention to the political climate, what's going on in the world, the president, anything like that? Yeah, he, he's very very in tune to everything. He, you know, he reads the paper and what he can get out of it. And he watches the news, and you know, he, he's got people around him who are intelligent who kind of keep up to speed on things. But but he, he's really interested. Like now, he's just fascinating with all the snow and the weather everyone's been having, and how it looks like we're going to have an ice age before we, global warming seems to do anything. You know, <laughs> it's all global warming. Yeah, now they now they're having uh, fires in the rainforest down in Brazil. Like it's bizarre because of drought or? Yep. Yeah, it's some. Yeah, so a totally weird reversal of the ecological situation. So the rainforests instead of being wet are catching on fire. Wow. Real bizarre. Not doesn't bode well. No, no, <laughs> not at all. But uh, the, the the fascination and the mythology of Manson just keeps increasing. Uh, is he? He must be aware, as nuts as he is, of as the the repellent phrase that Don mentioned earlier of the cultural icon sort of crap. Pop yeah. icon hates that. But he's never. It's 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 kind of weird because. I remember I was watching South Park once, and he comes. He's a character on there, and I'm talking to him on the phone. And going, this <laughs> hey, Charlie, you're on South Park. Yeah, wow. so I mean, he's, he's kind of everywhere, and I think every day, if, if you were able to monitor it, there's got to be a reference or two. And it, when you're involved with doing a book and all that kind of stuff, it pops up everywhere, you know. And so it, it's really. And I've tried to get that out of him. I've tried to ask him, like, you know, what, what's this all about? You know, why is this, why are you so famous? And he, he won't go there with me at all. He won't answer. He has no idea. And I think he he literally thinks he's trying, like, from where he's at in prison, he's trying to do what he can to save the world and hold up the economy. And these are things <laughs> he's told me. And then the whole world keeps giving it back to him. He's on TV. He's on, you know, people keep recording his music. And people keep making movies and he talks to a guy in Canada and he writes a book. <laughs> yeah. well, now, well, one of your little tricks was uh, you didn't come right out and say you were doing a book, did you? No, I never planned on doing a book. What, initially what, what started our relationship was he wanted me to do his final interview and we actually just talked about this last night again and he just wants one opportunity to go in front of the world and say everything he needs to say kind of thing. He doesn't think he's ever had that. How much of all your contact with Manson affected your own psyche? It's hard to say, you know. <laughs> you weren't too um, sure if you were nuts before or not. <laughs> I, I remember in, in transcribing his parts of the book, like spending three days, like straight, like 11, 12 hours a day, just listening to him and typing it out, getting, this is a little too much, you know. But um, I, I don't, yeah, I, I, I don't know how to answer that. I, I, I'm not trying to evade the question. No, I don't a, know. It's a tough question on purpose. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, are you going to do this thing with him where uh, do his last big interview? Uh, he's asked me to, so if that opportunity ever arose, I, I would do it. I, I guess, back to your first question about how it's impacted me, I mean, there's so many things about ethics and even responsibilities or whatever, and, and putting my name on the same book cover with him, you know, and when I was writing this book, it was kind of a solitary thing. It's just, you know, a lot of my friends and family and coworkers and stuff had no idea what I was doing, right? And then when it comes out, you know, people have all these assumptions that I'm a member of a cult and I sacrifice babies. (laughs) (laughs) 
and, sure. and I, you know, I had to talk to people, explain why I did this, and and hopefully, you know, people who read the book understand, you know, the reasoning behind everything. Yeah, you got to be careful of how things are on the cover of a book. One of mine, uh, with Broken Doll, about the Roxanne Doll homicide, where it says, a parent's worst nightmare come true, and then my name. Oh. <laughs> That's you know, the yeah. way they positioned it on the book. A parent's worst nightmare come true, Burl Bear. Now, you could know the book is not about me. I'm not the killer. Yeah, yeah. How much of a drug nut addict was he at the time of these murders? Do you know? Um... Well, I've talked to him a bit about drugs. Like, I know a lot of marijuana. He's done peyote and acid and all that kind of stuff. I don't know. But I, th I think if you neglect yourself, like, I, I mean, they weren't really sleeping or eating properly, and you're living in a state of paranoia, that, that affects your psyche a lot, too. Now, Bob, you know? how, how old was, was uh, Charles when the, uh, the horrible crime happened? Oh, he would have been about, like, 32 or something. So or it was already about 10 years past the average age of schizophrenia manifesting itself, because that usually pops up around you about, like, what, 23 or something? Yeah, early 20 in males, and then later in females, like, 28 or so, generally. Yeah. But I think, he, I think, yeah, I think he always was probably ill. However, when you get into drugs and stuff, it's going to... Makes it worse, yeah. Ten times worse, yeah. And so he's getting no medication. Uh, of course, they wouldn't be giving him Thorazine now to keep him just having drool in the corner. But yeah, I wonder if they're, I don't know what medications they, uh, what, what medications are they using now for schizophrenia and psychosis, uh, NOS and all that stuff? There, there's a lot cleaner medication with a lot less side effects. Like in Canada, Clozero is the big one. You know, you need to do a lot of blood work and be responsible. And But the problem with a lot of people who are, schizophrenic they end up doing a lot of self-medicating and getting into drugs and messing things up and or going off medication because they think they're doing well they don't need it anymore oh yeah you know that that happens all the time yeah i had a friend a friend of mine who's a schizophrenic and i i put a note on his tv set for him that says if they're talking about you dial this number, <laughs> number yeah. doctor. And, and a lot of people I, I mean that's a thread through the book is is mental illness and and um a lot of people function fine, you know, and, and even if you are schizophrenic, there's an assumption that if you take your pills, you're going to be great. It's only going to do, like, at best, maybe 60%. You're still going to hear voices on occasion when you're under a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety, you know. It's always going to kind of be there a little bit. It just kind of pushes it in the background a little bit. Yeah, I had to remind my buddy that he's the only one who could hear the voices because he's getting real upset with the stuff they were saying. Yeah. And he says, Burley says, I don't masturbate as often as they say. And I said, <laughs> I, I can't even hear them. You know? <laughs> you're, you're, they're, they're internally generated. <laughs> Did you have any chance to talk to him about, you know, before his sentence was commuted to life, what his reaction was to a death sentence? Was he at all concerned about that? Did it come up at all? Yeah, oh, yeah. I, I can honestly tell you that I've never met anybody ever or heard of anybody who has a will to live stronger than, than Manson's. Like, he, it makes no sense considering his situation. Like, for I would have hung myself a long time ago. Like, I have no, exactly. You know? and, and so I think when that happened and, and it was overturned, you know, like, I'm sure there was a lot of relief, but I, I don't know if it, yeah, I, he didn't really say a whole lot. He just thought, you know, being on death row was a hell of a lot worse than where he's at now, you know. Can well, you go? Go ahead, Don. How much worse can it be? He's what in a twelve by eight foot cell. How much time is he spending that cell during a day? Um, they have a common room where they're allowed to go out and have coffee and play board games and, and watch TV and stuff. How much time can he spend in this common room? Uh, 
I'm not sure what the schedule is, but pretty yeah, pretty much most of the day, and then they lock things up, and he plays oh, guitar every day. I'm sorry to hear that. Well, yeah. I mean, describe the cell a little bit so they can kind of have an idea of what the living environment is. Well, they have those the sink toilet combination. That's all metal, right? You have one of those, and everyone's cell there was initially made for two inmates, and they would have like a bed on each side. However, since everyone has their own cell, he, everyone else uses the other side for their, you know, put their, if they have a fan, if they have a TV, their paper, if they have a couple books or whatever, but they're very small. He has a There's TV? Not a, not a whole lot of room in there. Does uh, Manson himself have a TV or is it just in the common room? No, he has a TV in his cell. Oh. Uh, well, that's because he can watch do. The Biggest Loser. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what he, actually he watches a lot of children's shows. He told me that um, his favorite show is some he can speak fluent Spanish, which is really bizarre. I didn't. I guess he picked that up in jail. <laughs> but he liked Barney the dinosaur. He said that. You know. <laughs> well, you know, well, you, you, I learned something from yeah. today's interview. You know, you yeah. mentioned the thing about the uh, the childlike nature. Uh, mm-hmm. When I uh, I adopted a kid who was uh, two and a half years old at the time of his adoption, and he had a very rough, very rough first two and a half years. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I when I just grabbed him, you know, and took him. They said he's going to regress. He'll become almost like an infant. He won't talk. He'll, you know, be like helpless. And this is a defense mechanism. Is it the more mm-hmm. childlike the damaged person? It's, you know, is to protect themselves. The less chance of being hurt if yeah. if they uh, are like childlike. And of course, my son's only as damaged as Charlie. But mm-hmm. uh, that that thing makes perfect sense that he would be in that childlike state. Yeah, but what's very disarming to me, and maybe I'm naive, is I had this, in, in, I sort of envisioned him being in solitary confinement without mm-hmm. any amenities like televisions, radios, computers, or anything of that nature. He, he doesn't have a computer or anything. I, I think this is the longest he's been out of solitary for a while. Usually you get thrown in every, after every you know year or so. Um, when I started... Like this whole thing started with me, and I I started correspondence with Kenny Callahan guy, and Charlie was in the hole. He had fashioned um, a shank out of someone's arm brace, and there's another inmate who was gonna, you know, threaten to kill him, and so he's, he needed this to defend himself, and he went into the hole for a year over that. So he's in the hole for a year. Yeah, that can't and be so psychologically he, beneficial. Who cares? No, he says he doesn't <laughs> care. You know, does, he doesn't like, care. No. <laughs> Like he, it's kind of, yeah. He he sees everything completely different than the way I want to say a normal person, but that's not right. The way anyone else would. It's it's just like for me, the idea of going to the hole for a year would just drive me. You know, I don't even know how how do you prepare for something like that. But to him, it's just eh, whatever. Doesn't matter at all. Yeah, in fact, I think there's one point in the book where he talks about that, where he says, you know, we're going to put you in the hole. Fine, I like it in the hole. (laughs) You're going to punish me like Bear Rabbit in the Briar Patch. Okay, fine. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I wouldn't mind being there. I don't have to put up with you. Yeah. But I I think, like, I mean, he is older now, right? And and he's kind of just wants to be left alone. He kind of does his own thing. They all put up with him on his unit. You know, he's kind of doing all right. When are you going to cut the ties with this man? Um... It's all on his terms, right? He's the guy who calls me. <laughs> well, that, that might be running up a uh, hell of a phone bill, man, calling you collect from California to Saskatchewan. I don't know. Yeah, it just seems from your own emotional well-being, you'd want to say, all right, close the door, that's enough of that, and go on to something else. Yeah, but, yeah, I, I, I hear you. I, I don't know where things are going. Well, especially um, if, he wants, I, I, if he wants Marlon to do the last big, you know, interview. It's like, you know, 
the opportunity of a lunchtime, I guess. Yeah, but I, I don't see that. See when you asked again about how I how this all impacted me. I mean, I, I think in his own way, this guy's given me a lot, and I, I know he's not this open and candid with other people. And the people closest to him who have read the book, like Gray Wolf and David Hooker, and a few other of his friends, they, they can't believe the stuff that he said in there. So I, I think. You mean can't believe it? Like they, they can't believe he was that open with you, or can't believe? Yeah, it? yeah, absolutely. And and so it's tricky because you're dealing with one of the most hated people on the planet. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I, I don't even know. I can't even define if we have a friendship or not, or where, where things are going, or whatever. Um, I was just in California, and uh, he's, you know, he wasn't up to seeing me at all. He's, you know, he said he's not seeing anybody for at least half a year. So. I guess one of the things we should bring up also is that Manson is not getting any monetary compensation for any aspect of this book. That's right no, in the beginning no. of your book. And that, that's kind of a funny thing, too, because we use our values on how someone in a jail lives. He's allowed, um, I think, like four packages a year like a, of $500 in value, and then he's only allowed to have like a few hundred dollars for canteen in jail. So even if he had whatever many millions, you know, he can't do anything with it. Like, it, it's funny because he doesn't, the whole idea of fame means nothing to him or, or getting an idea across or doing anyone's, you know, talk show or, or doing anything for money doesn't mean anything to the guy, you know? Well, I wonder if he's listening. <laughs> you I, I, I got to say, Marlon, this has been a very enlightening experience, both the book and talking with you. And the book, the book is excellent. I must compliment you on your writing style. It just got me right off the bat. And I really recommend the book. Even if you're not into Charlie Manson, the book is fascinating. Uh, very well written. It's called Charles Manson Now by Marlon Marinick. Available wherever fine, upsetting, and engrossing books are sold. <laughs> and I'm sure you're going to do very well with it. And I hope your, uh, your own psyche stays intact through the process of you continuing dealing with Charles Manson. Well, thank you. I really appreciate this, you guys. Nice talking with you, Marlon. Thank yeah, thanks you. a lot. Bye-bye. Well, Burl, yeah. that was enlightening, and more okay. levels than one. I don't know. That must be difficult, you know? It just brought back such horrible memories of what happened at the time this was going on, living that close to it, right in your neighborhood. I wonder Kill if Cary Graham really was stupid some guy in the bush. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's no way of knowing. I mean, Cary's gone now. But well, well, let's not besmirch the guy. All right. Speaking of besmirching, Magic Matt Allen and the Demons of Decadence take time out of their busy schedule of ruling the universe of entertainment to be live in the Lighten Up Lounge. Coming up next on Outlaw Radio. Pardon me while I do a little dance now.